A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve. And help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Jordan Harbinger is a Wall Street lawyer turned communications and human behaviour expert. He's often referred to as the Larry King of podcasting, having hosted a top 50 podcast every year for over a decade. His current podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, receives over 6 million downloads a month, making it one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I've had a blast researching you, mate. Oh, really? So first off, congratulations on your podcast in Thank a crowded you. market full of, let's be honest, quite a lot of shite. Yeah. Uh, why are you so successful? You know, I think the reason that the Jordan Harbinger show is successful is primarily because I am, I never tried to get a big podcast f- for the first 10 years of doing it. And, and that was kind of important because all the metrics that we didn't have then that we have now can kind of discourage you if you're checking them every day and you're, it's going down or it's stagnant for like, if I'd known that my stats were stagnant for seven years, which they will never know if they were or not, but I assume they were, that would discourage most people who are trying to monetize a hobby. But since it was just a hobby and I never thought I need to start a business with this, even though I did eventually do so, it never bothered me. It was never like a metric in the business, how many people are listening to the show. And it should have been. So I kind of think, having no business sense and also developing it really, really slowly. Like most people would have learned quicker to pay attention to the metric of how many people are listening. Since I didn't, I I was able to push through this dip in skill where I didn't know what I was doing. I was able to push through this dip in when no one's listening to my stuff, nobody appreciates me. None of that was a factor. And I just kept doing what I liked, which sounds a little Pollyanna, but I think it it actually worked. No, no, that that makes sense, mate. Because what you can do, it frees you up because you're not worried about the commerciality to actually... Uh, be good you, you know to think about so, so uh, when I, I wrote a, the book that I sent yeah. you you go people say who did you write it for I went nobody I just wrote it for myself mm-hmm. they go what was your audience I don't have a clue I just wanted to write the book I wanted to write and then if it's a success well then yippee and if it isn't fine rather than thinking oh gosh I've got to put this bit in or take that bit out because certain audiences sure. may not like it I couldn't care less there's a lot of this sort of manufactured influencer shite as you said before where people will go okay what is some sort of vanilla ice cream garbage 
that I can shovel into Instagram, a podcast, a book, whatever, and that makes me relatable and also uh, sort of a beacon for other people's success, but not too unattainable of a level of success. So you get this manufactured imperfection where people on Instagram will go, they'll, they'll be a couple and they're doing a video and the guy starts talking and she goes, he goes, no, you start. And she goes, no, you start. And they leave it in that kind of manufactured yeah, fake yeah. crap. Uh, I, I was worried about you looking through some of the stuff that I've posted. Cause I, I, I get hired to do speeches, taking the piss out of self-appointed gurus, experts giving lame advice to vulnerable people so they can make money. Yeah. And, and there is something we'll come on to talk about it uh, later, but uh, about the self-help vortex mm-hmm. where you go, it, it, it can be such a power for good and it can be such a power. I think for, for evil, basically. You know, don't get me started on the secret. Oh, yeah. But before I do, <laughs> I need to I need to ask you, Mr. Six Million Downloads an Episode Man, uh, you were painfully shy as a youngster. Yeah. Uh, was there a specific moment when you said, right, enough of that, I'm going to go and talk to six million people, or, or did it gradually happen? Well, w- what's funny about this is when I was probably like seven or eight, I built this now, now that I'm thinking about it, it might have been 10. I went to Radio Shack, which is like this electronics store in the United States. It doesn't exist anymore. But you could buy components too. It's not like Best Buy. It's not like, a, what do you have down there, JCB or whatever, where you go in and there's yeah. stereos. It was the place where you go and an engineer goes, yeah, I need a mercury switch and three resistors of this kind and blah, blah, and a soldering iron. So I made an FM transmitter with some plans I had ordered by mail at the back of like a magazine. And the guy who was there said, oh, are you building an FM transmitter? And I said, yeah, you can tell just from the parts. And he's like, yeah, I'm studying communications engineering. So I made this thing and I came to Radio Shack and I said, again, I saw the same guy and I go, how do I make this thing more powerful? And he goes, it's illegal to do that. And I said, okay, but hypothetically or whatever word I used at you know, <laughs> the age where you're riding your bike to the mall, um, how would I make it more powerful? And he goes, you need a high gain antenna, which we don't really see those anymore, <laughs> but there are these antennas that people, if you go out in the country, they need it to get TV channels, right? So he goes, if you hooked it up to that, it would be a lot more powerful. And, and he goes, why do you want to do that though? And I said, I want to be able to talk to everybody in my whole neighborhood. And he goes, look, man, you're going to go to prison for this or get a fine from the FCC, <laughs> which is our federal communications commission, right? It's like a United States wide governing body. It's not good. It's called a pirate radio station. It's not legal. So then I forgot about it for 15 plus years, more than that. I went to law school. I became an attorney. And then I started a podcast in law school. And that's what grew. So in a way, I'm getting back to this thing I wanted to do when I was 10. But then again, there were probably other things I wanted to do back then. This one just sticks out because it actually happened. (laughs) It's so lovely talking to you, mate. Now, we have to get onto the choices because I designed a format which doesn't allow me just to do what I'd love to do, which is chat to you for another three hours. I have to get into your choices. And researching your choices has been a joy. So thank you, because I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard of your film or your book. So it was a voyage of discovery. Really? Getting into them. Yeah. So we're starting with your film, which is traditional. uh, And you've chosen one of Christian Bale's first uh, movie roles, Swing Kids from 1993, uh, tell me the story behind that and why you've chosen that. So Swing Kids is a, I'm, I'm actually not sure if it is a Disney movie, but I think it probably is along those lines. It's a kid's movie, but it's also really great for adults. And it shows you, well, before I get into what it shows you, the brief plot synopsis is there are these kids in Germany during World War II that are kind of 
a little bit outcast. They think that the Hitler youth is a bunch of dorks that are, it's like the, how you viewed ROTC during the Vietnam era or something like that. Like these are the squares, these are losers. They're like the punks, uh, these kids, but they listen to swing and swing was this version of jazz for lack of a better word, jazzy type music and big band music that they would dance to. And it was like rebellious to have this. It was the hip hop of 1942, right? Or worse. Uh, in terms of like the stigma and these Hitler youth and the police would bust these swing parties, but these kids didn't care. They were going to these swing parties like raves, right? Like it's in some warehouse and the band shows up and all the kids know where to go. Well, this really was an interesting film for me because Christian Bale and all of his crew, they make fun of the, the, the Hitler youth, but then Christian Bale ends up joining and it's, it just shows how these friends grow apart and are torn apart by the different pulls in society in Germany at that time. But any, any teenager or anybody with teenagers can relate to social pressure, uh, political views, changing, growing apart and things like that. But it also shows how your values are crucial, your personal values. Uh, there's an underlying message there, uh, that your values should sort of be timeless and not change with politics, but it also shows how your country can change right out from underneath you if you're not paying attention and if you don't fight to keep your principles. So you can just end up with Nazi Germany. Going back to the thing you said about friendships, is could you talk to any meaningful relationships, friendships you had that didn't go the distance because of a, a dynamic like in Swing Kings? As in you go, I was great friends with Dave, but then he suddenly took up fly fishing or became a Democrat or Republican or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, most of the friendships I think that I had that ended, uh, that were really tight at one time and no longer are, are things that probably ended because I worked really hard at keeping in touch with all of my friends, but if they didn't reciprocate that, I quickly realized that I needed to, to let those people go. Because if somebody right. can't be bothered to return your phone call, you know, how conscientious are they going to be in other aspects of your relationship? And as you become an adult and you get married and you have kids and you get other close friends throughout your life, it's like, how much room do I have for somebody that can't even return a text message or a phone call or a Facebook message, <laughs> right? So, yeah. but I don't know if I have anything that's melted down where I went, oh, well, this person is a alt-right neo-Nazi sympathizer now. I can't be friends with them. I, I don't think I know anybody like that. But I bet if we dug deep enough, there'd be some folks who've gone off the deep end. But um, maybe it's because I've been aggressive with pruning my relationships over time that nothing ever got to that that point. Do you think you've been pruned? Who hasn't, right? Who hasn't been pruned? Um, yeah. I've reconnected with old friends that uh, I hadn't talked to in a while. And there's the occasional, hey, yeah, you know, when we were really hanging out, I was kind of you know, not really all together. And they were like, yeah, we noticed that. And I went, ah, you know, maybe I was pruned. Now we're reconnected now. So all's well that ends well. And look, maybe I deserve to be pruned at that point in time. But I think, yeah, who, who hasn't been, if you think you haven't been pruned, you just don't have enough awareness to know that you got pruned. And maybe that lack of awareness is why you got pruned. There's your next Instagram post, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna put it, put it. I'll be standing, looking out on a beach, and I'll just lay it out in a fancy font. Now we're going to get to your second choice, sure. uh, and we're staying with a theme. Uh, so we're going to uh, the book that the New Yorker called the first masterpiece in comic book history. Oh, yeah. Wow. A, a friend of mine had a copy and lent it to me. Uh, it's Mouse M A U S, 1980 Art Spiegelman. 
Tell me about that amazing work and why. So I did cheat a little because Mouse, although it is a very popular book, it's still a comic. I think now they call them graphic novels because they're embarrassed to call them comics. But uh, this was, there were several of them. I do remember the book Mouse pretty well because I don't think I ever had it assigned in school. A lot of Jewish friends um, would hear certain stories about me and suggest that I read it. And I found out later that those Jewish kids were like, we're pretty sure you're Jewish and you just don't know. And the story behind that, you know, I thought it was a comic. Again, it is, but it's about a Jewish guy's relationship with his father who was in the Holocaust. And it's both funny and also kind of disturbing because the father is telling stories about what happened in the Holocaust. But again, it's a graphic novel and it's sort of comic bookish. You read it. So like, the Polish people have pig masks on, but they're cats or something like that. And they're, the cats, the the pigs, and the mice, they delineate certain ethnicities. And it's very yes, obvious. So the, the Jewish people are mice right. and the Nazis are cats. It's, it's sort of horrifying yet simple. Uh, it's, it's just an amazing piece of work. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's a palatable way to ease into reading about something really horrible without just looking at statistics in a history book. And so the friends that suggested I read this, they, I mean, it turned out that they were right as, as it was their parents who sort of had come up with this. My mom is Jewish, but she's non-practicing. Her mom was Jewish, but non-practicing. And she said, don't tell anyone we live in a Polish neighborhood. So it was just one of those things back in Detroit in the forties and fifties, you didn't advertise. And so technically I was Jewish and all these Jews at my school were like, huh, you know, let's give him this book and like sort of edge it in there because they would ask me if I was Jewish and I would say, no, I don't think, you know, no, I don't think so. So so, so you were in the closet. Yeah. But I didn't know (laughs) that I was Jewish until I was probably 12. And I think right. it came up as a result of people saying, you should read this, and by the way, this, and by the way, that. And I would say, like, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't know, understand what this Jewish thing is. And then I told my mom, I said, oh, man, we learned about, or, and we learned about this, and I'm reading this book, Mouse. And my mom would go, why are you reading this? And that's how I found out I was Jewish in a lot of ways. Because I, I said, I, I'm so glad this can't happen to me. That's what I said. And she was, because there were kids, you know, in the concentration camps in the book Mouse. And she said it could, and it would have, because technically under uh, Hitler's standards, I can't remember what they exactly were. One sixteenth, I think, was enough to be considered yeah. tainted blood or something like that. And she goes, and so this would have worked, and you would have been one eighth or one sixteenth, and so therefore you would have made the, you would have unfortunately made that cut. And so that was really impactful. And then I got all the other books by Arch Spiegelman, uh, Mouse, and whatever the sequels were. And I just devoured them. You know, it was, an, yeah. it was a good way for a kid to learn about some of that stuff. Now, now one of the themes that you mentioned was the, it, it's the device in the book is a son talking to his father about those appalling events, uh, which leads me to want to ask you about your dad and your relationship with your dad and how that, how that formed you and influenced you to be who you are today. Yeah, my dad is a great guy. He really worked really, really hard at Ford, and which is Ford Motor Company, because we're again, we're from Detroit. So if your dad or uncle didn't work at a motor company or an auto supplier, or, or was a singer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like there were a few people whose parents didn't work in automotive, and they it was the people who owned convenience stores or shoe, shoe stores. You know, it was like, that was it. Yeah. Everybody else's parents were an automotive or, you know, were a teacher. My mom was a teacher and my dad was an automotive. So it's like firmly Detroit middle class. 
and he worked a lot. So if anything, he taught me a great work ethic. But, you know, some lessons you learn by looking at someone and saying, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, and one of the lessons he taught me not to do, for sure, is to spend all your time at an office because he worked so much that I remember him not being home that often. And when he was home, he was kind of stressed out. And for a while I was like, you know, this isn't great. He's kind of a pain in the butt. He's really, you know, angry and stressed out all the time. I don't really like this. And it affected our relationship. So now that I have a 10 month old, I'm just thinking, all right, the best thing I can do is make sure that I am accessible and home a lot. And now I work from home. So that's great, but it also means I have to be even more careful not to be like, I'm home all the time. I spend ton of tons of time with my kid, and then I'm in this studio with this background going and, you know, hacking away at audio or doing interviews or something like that, and he's in the other room playing Xbox, because that's, I might as well be gone. Yeah, house, yeah. You know? So... I'm very careful about that. That's great awareness for a young dad, I tell you. And, and so yeah. I, I, I'm grateful to your father for passing on that, un, that <laughs> unwitting lesson. <laughs> now, your third Thank choice you, yeah. is, uh, is uh, your song. And we're staying in the 80s. Uh, and you are the first person to add a Bon Jovi track to the Spotify Five of My Life playlist. Uh, really? You've, yes. You've chosen their signature song, Wanted Dead or Alive. Well, this this song, look, a lot of music is tough, right? Because everyone has 8 billion songs from when they were a kid, and it's just general nostalgia. And I was like, I don't want to do general nostalgia. That's not what he's looking for here. So this Bon Jovi song, Wanted Dead or Alive, when I went to Serbia, not Siberia, a lot of people get these confused, Serbia, former Yugoslavia, I lived in Belgrade for 14 months, and it was right after college, between law school and college, because in the United States, law school is a graduate school. So you do four years of undergrad where you're qualified to scoop up ice cream or something like that or write a paper about Shakespeare. But law school is essentially a trade school. It's three years later. So between then, I, since I didn't get into my law school right away, I took a gap year, which no Americans really ever no. get a chance to do. And I, I went to Serbia. And my friend Miroslav, there, of course his name is Miroslav, we used to listen to tons of 80s rock because he was a little older than me and he was really into it. So we would crank Bon Jovi and he had this sort of pirated Russian DVD of a Bon Jovi concert. <laughs> and we would, anytime we had parties at my loft, because I rented a loft there uh, to live, he, he, you know, and he lived with like his parents or something like that. So it was a tiny place. I rented like a really cool party spot. We would blast this DVD a hundred times in a weekend and we would turn the volume up as loud as it could go. And we would throw parties that would have the cops coming over. I mean, we were just punks. The elevator was broken in our building and it was up five floors. It was a brand new building. The elevator probably never worked. So the cops were too lazy to come up and they would just yell at us from the ground. Hey, turn the music down. And I would say in English, I don't understand. Of course I know what they're doing. I was just being a, a jerk because I was 22. And we would blast this music and go keep the neighborhood up till six o'clock in the morning. And uh, we even drove to Bulgaria from Serbia, which is a decently far distance and we would we were singing belting this thing out so it's just a song that i remember kind of abusing oh uh, but great great times 20 now, years ago and was this when you were kidnapped i've read that you've been kidnapped twice you've got to tell me about yeah. that is that a myth or is that true no it's true so the first time was hopefully a fake taxi incident in mexico city where you and i didn't know about this at the time but there's a whole 
bunch of fake taxis and you can get in these fake taxis and they'll just rob you. And I got into a taxi, what looked like a real taxi. And I said, I'm going to the center of Mexico city. Come on, you know, just take me there. I, I don't have a, I don't have a, any cash. I have a credit card. So I'm going to have to stop at an ATM. Now that was a bad. That was a bad idea. 22. I'm dressed up nice. Cause I'm going out and I say, Hey, I have a credit card with me, you know, <laughs> that I'm going to use to take out money. And so he, I think just sort of saw dollar signs and he started driving away from where I was going, not expecting me to know where I was going because I was right. a foreigner. So I said, hey, we're going the wrong way. And he's like, oh, no, 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 it's just we're going this way. And then it was we're going the wrong way, we're going the wrong way. And he's like, I'm just going to ask for directions. And I thought, this is bad. I'm going to the center of Mexico City, which is like where the presidential palace is. So he doesn't need directions. No cab driver in Washington, D.C. needs directions to the White House. No cab driver in Sydney, Australia needs directions to the Opera House. They know how to get there. They know where it is. So I started to get really worried. And, and this was 2000 or 2001. I can't remember now before mobile phones. So I was paying attention. I, I think if this were happening today and I was scrolling around on Instagram, I'd be dead or, or whatever. But I was paying attention and I said, Hey, this is the wrong way. Let me out right here. And he said, I thought you don't have any money. Cause I was like, I'll pay you, you know? And he's like, well, you, you can't. And I said, take me back. And he said, how are you going to get money? You don't have an ATM at your house. And I thought, Oh my gosh, you know, I really painted myself into a corner. And so he stops at this really sort of ghetto looking cinder block house and he went to try and get out of the car. But I said, don't you leave this car? Because I thought, again, before mobile phones were ubiquitous, if he gets out of this cab and goes to that house, that's probably where all his friends are or some gang members or something. I'm never coming out of there. So I said, you, but just keep going and I'll pay you. Just go to some ATM. I'll take money out and pay you and just let me go. And he said, no. And he made a fast move for the door, but I was sitting in back and I had moved behind him. And when he had made a fast move for the door, I had already shoved my arm between him and the door. And I was 20 years old. Yeah. 20 years old, maybe 21, but probably not yet. And I worked out twice a day and ate a bunch of carne asada tacos every day in Mexico because I didn't have much to do. And he was in his 50s and sat in a cab and drove all day. So I was in much better shape than he was. And he tried to get out, couldn't get away. And I ended up, uh, it, like, a, gave him a, a choke from the back seat and he passed out eventually. So I couldn't unlock my door. He had cut the lock above the door. And, right. uh, you know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. the, the part that sticks up, he had cut that and then locked it. So you couldn't get your fingers around it to pull it up. And the handle didn't work. He had the child safety on, or he had rigged it. So I had to crawl between the two front seats, open his door, push him out. I tried to drive the car. I couldn't because it was a 1968 Volkswagen Beetle with a weird stick shift that I was not able to figure out. You know, every stick shift car has a, has a trick. The clutch has a trick. And I, I'll be real. I probably drove a stick once in my life at age 20, right? Americans, we all drive uh, automatic cars. So I took him out of the car and then I took the keys out because I didn't want him to wake up and drive after me. I took the keys and threw them. 2020 hindsight should have kept the keys, but it didn't matter. I ran away. He didn't chase me. And I, to this day, I still wonder, did I kill a cab driver in Mexico City or did he just get up and, you know, walk it off? I don't know. Oh, and what's the second time? The second time was when I was in Serbia and I was being watched by their secret, their quote unquote secret police. They're, they just have state security, but these guys were kind of hacks. There's different types of state security in Serbia. There's like 
federal agent type people who are probably investigating real crimes. What do I know? And then there's these idiots that were living in rural Bosnia and were given positions in the security services because they were in militias in Bosnia and they had to be, I don't think, I don't know about this as fact, but I assume they're trying to skirt and fit these guys into some international law by saying they're combatants, they're federal agents, they're in the security services of Serbia uh, at the time or whatever. Because if they didn't, I think it's, no, this is some a-hole who bought a machine gun and started killing other people in the Bosnian war. And they probably are going to be guilty of some war crimes. So I don't exactly know if that's true, but I do know that a whole bunch of bastards who have no qualifications and no training were at the time, 2004, in the employ of the secret or the state security of Serbia. I I hope they've rooted these guys out. But anyway, these guys had me on their list as some kind of foreign troublemaker because I had been taking, I I was at the time taking a salary from the U S department of defense because that was who had given me a grant to study Serbian and go to Serbia in the first place. So I was on the list of this guy's probably a spy. And these two guys were high as kites and they found me at a concert and they were drunk and or high on some kind of weird drug. I don't know. And they grabbed me and my friend and they had taken us somewhere. And it's a whole long story, but we ended up in uh, a safe house that was from their security services. And then the police were investigating it. And we ended up with a letter of apology from the interior or the foreign minister of Serbia via our embassy, because it was weird and made the news. And it was a very sort of sketchy situation that was really embarrassing. And I remember the U.S. Embassy, the guy who handled security there said, do us all a favor and forget about this because there's no proof of anything. You're never going to get a fair investigation and it's just going to make our job getting things done in Serbia that much harder. So we just kind of said, screw it, you know. And then, of course, what was weird is this is my first experience with fake news because a few weeks later they printed the, the newspaper printed some BS retraction that was like, oh, it turns out these kids were, these kids were drunk and these random thugs took them and these, they had nothing to do with the security at all. And I'm like, but you printed the names of the security agents and said it was them. So how did you have their names and say, and you confirmed that they were security agents, which we already knew. And then you retracted it to say random gang members kidnapped some drunk foreigners. And we don't know if it even happened. It's like, this is fake news. I love the fact that Bon Jovi has led us to that story. Yes. Yes, I don't know how uh, that happened, but here we are. That's the point of the show, right? Indeed. Now, your fourth choice is your place and unusually for an american mm-hmm. there is a very strong european theme to your choices and we're going back to germany not any old germany but former east germany uh, tell me about that why is that your choice mate i became an exchange student in 1998 of which everybody knows what those are right is that a term that only americans for users yeah. that okay cool no 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 that's <clears throat> that's fine so yeah. you'd think i would know that as an exchange student but it's been a long time so it's 1998 <laughs> I decided to go on an exchange because I was st- I was at the point where I thought I'm so bored in school I'm gonna start getting in trouble and and my friends started getting in trouble and the girl I was dating at the time she was like hey I got bad news I'm moving to Norway to go to boarding school because this school sucks and I was like M- I need to do that too 
And I told my parents and they were like, yeah, we're not sending you to some super fancy boarding school in Europe. Um, so you can chase your girlfriend. And I was like, I don't even care if I go to the same school as her. I just need to get out of here. And my girlfriend, that girl said, contact this exchange company, uh, AFS and go on an exchange. And I said, sure, why not? What's the worst thing that can happen? So uh, I decided to roll the dice. I wanted to go to Israel. My mom said, hell no, they blow up buses there. I said, cool, Hong Kong was where I really wanted to go anyway. She said, hell no, that the, the <laughs> island or the area territory is going back to, not an island, going back to uh, to China and China's communist. And we, at, my mom was well aware of what happened to people who were on the wrong side of the Berlin Wall, for example. Uh, when the when that went up. So ironically, the other place that she said I could go to was Germany. And I happened to be one of the, I don't know, like 1% of exchange students that ends up in the former East Germany. It was no longer East, of course. It was 98. So it, the wall had come down eight years ago or, or seven years ago. So she, she was like, I don't know the difference, really. It doesn't matter. It's all one country now. And I went, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then, of course, you show up there and you go, wait a minute. You can't. This isn't flipping a light switch on and off. Right. They're not just running power cables over from West Germany. They're rebuilding an entire country that was communist and built by the Soviets and not in great shape. And um, I was the only American that most of these people had ever met when I went there. And it was, I got to tell you, it started off as my worst nightmare because I thought this sucks. Everybody's partying in West Germany and everything here is sort of gray and boring. And it turned out to be hands down the best year of my entire life. There's so many things that were, that I learned there and that I did there that were just absolutely incredible. I can elaborate, but I realize I'm doing run-ons here. No, no, no. I love it. So, so just give us a flavor. Give us two of the things that you learned from that, the best year of your life. So imagine being the only American in a place where Americans were still cool, right? Like imagine going to a place where you, it, it felt like, it felt like exactly what you would expect. You know, I showed up there and people were like, wow, you're American? That's so awesome. That never happens anywhere now. Back then, people were just absolutely blown away. And the only foreigners that a lot of people knew in East Germany were Russians, Vietnamese, and Cuban, people from other sort of uh, authoritarian communist societies. There weren't even Chinese people there, right? It was just like Eastern Europeans, maybe, but mostly Russians. So they were blown away because they'd been devouring American culture since before they were allowed to probably, but certainly after the wall fell. And so their entire, these kids are 18 from age 10 to wherever age they were 18, then nine, nine, 10, all the way up to now, they'd been just devouring everything American. And so I got there and started learning German and it was just absolutely incredible. My quote unquote job there was real low, low key, learn German. My host parents told me they were both teachers and you know, don't worry about your grades in math or anything. Everyone understands if you can't do it. So I ended up with this other job side hustle, if you will, where all I did was go to high schools uh, that were all the kids my same age and give talks about what it's like to be an exchange student. I did this a couple times a month and I would go to another high school in my area. So every high school kid who took English, which is pretty much every high school kid, knew who I was because I'd come to their class and given a talk in German and English about why being an exchange student is so great. And it so I would go out and it was like, there's that guy, there's an American guy, the only one we've ever met who's an exchange student here in Halle the city that I went to. So I felt like a local celebrity. I was the only, I was stood out like a sore thumb with the way that I talked. I had a ton of friends. 
we were allowed to go skiing and we went to Italy on little trips. And it was uh, the freedom that American kids have is like, you can ride your bike to the mall, be home at seven. The freedom that European kids have is like, yes, you can go to Italy with your friends and go camping, but you know, we want to hear from you on the phone, send us a text message and let us know how you're doing, you know, and don't drink too much. Use a condom. They would say, right. I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on your show. You might have to edit that out, but like, and I was just flabbergasted because I was 17, 18 and my parents were like, you better not do this and that and the other thing. And my host parents were like, you want a beer? Sure. You can stay the night at Maria's house. So I, I grew up three or four years in many ways during that year and had a ton of experiences that nobody I know really ever has. What a fantastic time. Now, I have to say, in terms of events that change a man or anybody, uh, getting married and having a kid uh, would be right up there. Tell me, how has it been, you and Jennifer becoming young parents? I love it. Uh, it, it, I got to tell you, if I'd known, with both getting married and having a kid, if I'd known how great it was going to be, I would have done it a long time ago. Uh, I would have done it a lot earlier, I should say. So I got married when I was about 30, or I met Jim when I was about 33, got married, I don't know, at 36, 37. But I thought it was going to be this massive change because everyone says it changes you so much. It's so different. Everything's so much more permanent. That's not necessarily untrue, but I will say that it wasn't like, oh my God, everything's changed now. I'm glad I waited. It was more like, okay, I probably could have done this like within a year of meeting my wife, but that's 2020 hindsight. You can also find out things you don't like in two years and go, thank God I didn't marry them. But having a kid, same thing. It was, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not ready. And finally our friends and other parents were saying, there's no such thing as the right time. That could not be more true. If you're thinking about having kids, but it's not the right time because coronavirus, it's, I know that sounds valid. I know that sounds like an exception, we were saying, but our business just fell apart and we had to restart this and we moved and you know, this and that, and then all this happened. And we ended up draining our savings for this other thing that also seemed valid. But then we had a kid anyway, and it was like, okay, well that was not really that big of a deal. You know, we had great family support. That was probably <laughs> part of it. I would have gotten married and had kids earlier if I'd known what I know now, but I think, uh, everyone probably says something along those lines. Are you going for six or are you happy with one? I want like four, but my wife is like, hell no, man. Maybe two Get away or from three. me. Yeah, she's pretty much like, don't <laughs> look at me sideways. <laughs> now, listen, we're going to finally leave Europe. We're going back to America uh -huh. for your possession. Yes. And we have chosen, uh, and, and correct me if I get this wrong, mate, a Walnut Custom Audio Desk that you do your world-famous podcast from. That's right. Yeah. Tell me about it and the story behind it. So pretty much every episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show has been recorded on this desk. And I, it's a Walnut desk that a friend of mine made for me. And it puts all of the hardware that I need, it sort of mounts in there. You know, you can screw it in. There's drawers. It's a standing desk that's built exactly for my height. Uh, it's got all the little drawers and hooks and shelves that I need for all my stuff and nothing more. And it's all handmade. So it's really something that... I don't care about material possessions at all. I'm always here. I'm here for hours every day. I'm hold. I'm feeling the wood where I put my hands when I do shows. There's almost like a different texture. Not almost. There is a different texture because of where my hands go sometimes. I'm always arranging and rearranging things on it. You know, I'll move something over, and then if this is crooked, I'll turn this 
parallel and perpendicular. You know, it's my fidgeting area when I'm working as well. If I'm waiting for something, I'll be, you know, rubbing my hand on the wood grain. It's like the woodworker, my friend Brandon was done with it. And now I'm putting my usage into the desk somehow, you know, and I just had to move it because we moved house and I did, I mean, these guys were throwing stuff around, moving stuff around. They were being plenty careful, but when it was time to move this thing downstairs and move it into the truck, I supervised every second of it. And the guys said, this is your favorite thing, huh? And I said, yeah, they said, we've never seen a desk like this. I've, I've been moving for 20 years. I've never seen anything made like this. This is really nice. And he goes, it's also really, really heavy. (laughs) (laughs) One of my friends is a sculptor and, uh, he talks about the best favorite pieces of art that he's made it's a wonderful phrase is when the material fights back interesting so he's going to make a, a, an amazing granite sculpture and, and he can't do exactly what he wants because mm. the stone doesn't let him so uh, i love the fact that that desk if i ever were to see it you, you actually have made it part mm-hmm. of you because where where your hand has worn away a little bit from 15 years of podcasting but that's that's uniquely it's a part of you it, you know the, the desk and you have sort of melded in some way. So it's a very personal yeah, thing. Yeah, it's it's very it's very weird because something will happen where like when we moved it, there's like a little dent that you can't see, but I can feel it. And now and, and my wife was like, oh no, it's not that bad. And I was like, no, I don't even care. It's like, that's part of the story. And that's going to end up with like getting rubbed smoother by my thumb over the next three and a half to five years. You know what I mean? Now, now at the top of the show, we were talking about uh, the self-help vortex. Yeah. So I'm going to end off with a few questions, which I've just really wanted to ask you about. So um, we all know, I could ask you the best bit of wisdom. And I love going through as much of your stuff as I could. Every second you feel sorry for yourself is a total waste of time. Action ends suffering. Dig the well before you're thirsty. It's gold. But I don't want to ask you about the gold. I want to ask you, because I've got a real problem with Victor's wisdom. Yes. That's people who are successful and they rewrite history. So I want to know, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given by somebody who you think is actually not got the credibility to be advising anyone anything. Oh my gosh. I mean, the usual, the one that I hate the most might be follow your passion because- (laughs) I haven't got a passion. I work at a chicken factory. Yeah, there's that. And there's also a lot of people that followed their passion straight into their mom's basement, you know, where most passions go to die. The other thing is you said, uh, you called it Victor's wisdom. And I guess that's a great term for what I guess you would call survivor bias or something like that, right? Like, sure, if we put someone on the spot and we get some billionaire, you know, Mark Cuban, for example, and, and we go, Mark, give us one bit of advice, and he'll go, uh, fo- you know, follow your passion because I know a lot of passionate founders and they do really well. But then it's like, well, Mark, were you just passionate about using the internet to give people audio services? Are you passionate about investing, you know, in this company that makes custom blah, blah, blah cards for the ethernet services, you know, and, and he won't be, but we hear that from him because it sounds good. And it's easier than him saying, oh my gosh, you have to get lucky a lot of times. And you really need to diversify your bets when it comes to what companies you invest in. And everyone's like, wait, 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 you have 15 seconds on CNN. I don't care about that. Tell me like a thing that sounds cool. So they'll throw that out there. I I love that answer. I love that answer. And especially the thing about acknowledging luck. Mm -hmm. I I used to work uh, for a management consultancy, one one of my roles, and and we did uh, a research survey amongst very high net worth individuals. These are very successful, rich people. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the questions that we were asking them is to what do you attribute your success? Mm -hmm. 
Hard work, 99%. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And you go, guys, uh, a coal miner in Brazil works harder than you ever will in your life. <laughs> right. And they haven't got two cents to rub together. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you didn't work hard. I'm not saying that working hard wasn't helpful. But trust me, you muppet, hard work is not a guarantee no. of success. It's ludicrous to think that. It's like those people that say, <laughs> those, there's people that say things like, we believe that what comes back to you is the amount of value that you put out in the world. And I go, oh, so you're a YouTuber. <laughs> Do you think a nurse who works in an emergency room who makes one-tenth of what you make is just doing one-tenth of the amount of important work that you're doing? Yeah. You sell floral arrangements on YouTube. Get bent. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Write a check to the universe. Yeah. How about don't? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, I, I, it's been so nice talking to you. I've got two questions. One, I have stolen from listening to all your bloody podcasts. Great. Okay, so here we go. So the penultimate question is, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I had? Oh my gosh. You know, I, 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 I've grown to hate that question um, for myself, but it's cool <laughs> that you used it. Not really. No, I think okay, that, you know, you're an awesome That's interviewer. The, the format works. Yeah. The, the format works. It does. Okay, now the, the second question, and you need to step up, Harbinger. Okay. The second question is, I'm going to ask you the traditional six question, which is, who do you want to hear on Five of My Life next? But in your case, I want you to mention somebody intergalactically famous that's your best friend that you can put me in touch with. Ooh. So who do, you, who do you want to hear on Five of My Life next? That's interesting. So somebody who's famous or just somebody who's really interesting? No, no, I, I, no I'm joking. It, it, it's anybody who you actually would like to hear field the questions that I've asked you. It doesn't matter if you don't know them. And oh, anyone. okay, interesting. Man, there's so many good, there's a lot of great people. Hmm. I wonder what Malcolm Gladwell has been. We talked about him at the top, uh, probably even pre-show. So he would be an interesting one. I, I love Malcolm Gladwell. I love him. He'd be a good one. But you know who'd be maybe even more fun and entertaining would be Mike Rowe. Do you know that show Dirty Jobs? Uh, yes, yes. So he's got a lot of humor and he's got a great speaking voice. And I bet you he's got a lot of five of my life type stories. He's a great storyteller. So, Jordan, I have to say, mate, I am thrilled that somebody said I should investigate you because it's been a, a, just an absolute joy getting to know you. I think what you do, which I have to say, I started biased against wanting to like you and I ended up loving you and I love what you do and your podcast is great and I think you're just a joy. So thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Wait, wait, why were you biased against... I have to ask, why were you biased against... Uh, liking me in the beginning. what You just decided uh, okay. not to uh, early? Yeah. Well, so, so, yeah. Well, no, 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 no. Uh, this, this is without knowing anything about okay, you. Gotcha. So, so my whole shtick with Five of My Life isn't giving actionable advice. That's not what I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thrilled that it's what you do, but it's not what I want to do. I just want to have an entertaining, elevating, sideways in different way to hearing about Malcolm Gladwell or Jordan Harbin. Sure. Right? I, I am naturally predisposed, because I'm a bit of a tricky character, to people who set themselves up, the, the fake people, yeah. to be, uh, listen to me, I've got all this wisdom. Oh my God, and you I go, agree. You go, but you haven't. You, you haven't got any, no, not you, but as in right. generally, I think somebody who said, there's nothing new. If you've read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. yeah, the, you know, yeah, the book written after the Holocaust, you, you don't need to read any other book ever, basically. I don't need Anthony Robbins to no, tell me, no. you, you know, that I've got to walk across some fire coals. So my, the fact that I love you is important because it's a high bar because I've got such an attuned bullshit detector mm. that my, my going in point is, Everyone talks crap. 
I could not agree <laughs> and more. And they've got to prove that they don't. I could not agree more. I, I will always go after these fake gurus. I do whole episodes about the guru scam and everything like that. I dispense advice on Fridays every Friday, as you probably noticed, and that is only listener questions that come to me. I don't go, today I'm going to teach you about making money online and passive. I don't do anything like that. This is like, I really want to leave my job as a lawyer to work for my uh, dad, but I know that my you know mom is going to make my life a living hell in the business. What do I do? And then I find somebody with experience and we talk about it. And then I dish the advice. I don't do, but I, I, there are so many people giving bad advice or advice, which they are completely unqualified to give. Uh, it's, it borders on criminal and in fact is criminal or should be criminal, at least here in the United States with some of these investment and make money scams. So look again, we could talk for hours and just shred these people. And it is one of my hobbies, but I want to be respectful of your time. Ah, it's been a joy, mate. Thank you so much. And, and good luck with all those kids that are coming up. Thank you very much. You too. Take care. The five of my life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 